Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Little snowmen, peanuts, or my favorite, yeasty beastie, our good friend, Malassezia, or yeast. Let's just have a whole podcast episode dedicated to talking about yeast. What exactly is it? What are the treatment options that are out there? It seems really simple and straightforward, but there is more and more information that we're learning about yeast. We certainly know it can cause a lot of issues and cause a lot of pruritus, especially in our canine patients. So we certainly see it in felines as well. And no, pets do not get this from eating bread. <laughs> I've heard that from clients before. What we know, Malassezia pachydermatis is the most common yeast organism present on dog skin, cat skin. It's a commensal yeast. It's supposed to be there. It's normally present in really low numbers. We can see it in places like external ear canals and obviously the skin itself. If you look at it, and I'm sure all of you hopefully have seen yeast or feel comfortable identifying yeast under cytology because it is one of the more common things that we see. Um, it's round oval. We, again, People kind of say it looks like a peanut or a snowman if it's got budding. So it has a monopolar budding. You can occasionally see them non-budded and that can be a bit more difficult to identify. But if you usually look, you'll end up finding some on the slide that are budded. Um, they're lipophilic, non-lipid dependent. Um, they're saprophytic yeast. And we see them underneath the microscope often with malassezia dermatitis or some sort of malassezia overgrowth. Um, there are other forms of malassezia that can uncommonly occur, like sympodalis, um, which would be different than pachydermatis, but you know, we're not doing specific fungal or yeast um, cultures, but for those particular organisms, they might be more kind of bulbous and have more of a narrow-based bud. But nothing clinically I would I would worry you about. It's not something I'm necessarily differentiating. We know about Malassezia dermatitis, and again, this is more recognized in dogs, though we do certainly see it in some cats. It's just like most infections, a secondary problem due to an underlying disease. And so we see Malassezia dermatitis and Malassezia otitis all the time um, in our allergic patients, whether it's canine atopic dermatitis, you know, in some cases, feline atopic skin syndrome, flea allergy dermatitis. Uh, cutaneous adverse food reaction. And you can even see it from other diseases that are not allergic. So endocrine diseases, such as a dog developing hypothyroidism or hyperadrenocorticism. So there's lots of different predisposing factors, even in the literature that we can see for pets developing malassezia dermatitis, you know, even external things like increased humidity, certainly skin folds. So having those intertrigo infections. So Abdominal skin folds because you're getting those friction, frictional areas and they rub together that can damage the skin. Think of all our little brachycephalic breeds with the facial folds, tail folds. Obviously that can predispose to things like yeast dermatitis, even different cutaneous pH levels. Um, you know, if they've been on things like corticosteroids or immunosuppressive for long periods of time that might fight off their ability to kind of control their own malassezia population since it is a commensal organism. 
So it's really important that we do cytology to identify if it's yeast, if they have yeast and bacteria. Um, we know there is some thought that malassezia could even have like a symbiotic relationship with commensal staphylococcus organisms. So we know they can produce kind of mutually beneficial growth factors and micro environmental alterations, which we, you know, there's some literature supporting this. Where do we typically see malassezia dermatitis? And we're going to focus on dogs since it is more common to see um, malassezia dermatitis in dogs, but we all, we will touch on cats at the end. Um, really typical areas, um, lip margins. So if you have a dog come in and they're just really, I've had this happen a few times where they're really rubbing their face on stuff, um, really check out those perioral areas like the lip margins. If they're kind of red, dry, scaly, or they are just really bothering them, or I've even had some where owners report like really foul breath, like really terrible smelling breath, but their teeth will look fine. Sample around the lip margins because I've had quite a few cases where malassezia dermatitis will affect that area, especially if they have underlying allergies. We also clearly think of things like ear canals and then the very typical skin areas that are affected by allergies. So axillary region, groin, ventral neck's a big one. So in some of these, you know, floppy coated dogs like the basset hounds that have really big neck folds, um, blood hounds really pull up that neck. It can be, you know, in a, when you're doing a quick exam, it can be easily overlooked, but look at that ventral neck, like really pull apart those neck folds because often we'll see erythema, like canification, really moist debris, even yellow crusting there. Interdigital spaces, Perivulvar skin can actually have a lot of malassezia as well. Perianal skin. So if they're scooting, licking, chewing back there, look around that anal area. You certainly can get a malassezia dermatitis that can be affecting that. And then, you know, one of my favorites, those claw folds. So get out your toothpicks and get a cytology sample of those claw folds so that we, if they are licking, chewing their paws, even if the skin looks pretty good, we know that perinechia, inflammation or an infection within that claw fold can absolutely cause them to be very, very itchy. And so we want to make sure we identify that. Paritis is definitely going to be one of the main things we see, and it can be pretty severe, especially if they're very sensitive to malassezia. And yes, it can have an unpleasant odor and a very distinctive look to it. But you all know my rule. We do not diagnose malassezia based on how it smells or looks, even if it seems pretty classic. We look underneath the microscope because we certainly can have certain, you know, staphylococcal infections, pyoderma that really can mimic malassezia. And I have numerous times been fooled before looking under the scope, I have taken like five or six samples on a dog being like, where's the yeast? And all I find is cocci. But classic quote unquote signs that you will see will be alopecia with really bright red erythema. You can get scaly, waxy, kind of greasy skin that has that yellow kind of crusting to it. Papulocrustis lesions. Lichenification is a big one, but again, I've seen plenty of lichenification just from pyoderma. That perinechia that we talked about, but that dark brown nail bed discoloration. And as you treat it, um, you'll actually see kind of healthy nail grow out and a ring of brown will grow out from that health, healthy nail fold, claw fold. And then of course, intertrigo, as we talked about the fold dermatitis and around the lip margins breeds any dog that can have 
any disease that affects their skin can get malassezia. But of course, we see we see certain breeds be predisposed. So by far and away, we always think of those little elephant Westies. So the West Highland White Terrier, they just tend to drop a lot of their hair, get that really, really thick, itchy elephant type skin from all the light kinification. Other breeds that we can see it in, Basset Hounds for sure. We see plenty of Basset Hounds, Bloodhounds with Malassezia Dermatitis. Um, you know, poodles, Shih Tzus. We see a lot of Shih Tzus that will get Malassezia and Pyoderma. Um, German Shepherds, Dachshunds for sure. We see an increased risk of Malassezia Dermatitis. And no matter how you're going to sample cytology, you know, whether it is direct impression smear, doing it through tape, if that's what you're comfortable with, even the scrape method where you're not necessarily looking for mites, but you're scraping some superficial skin onto a slide and staining it and evaluating it. Or of course, using the toothpick and the claw fold, you're going to look for those organisms and you want to look really closely where keratinocytes are. Yeast really like to stick to keratinocytes. So you can look in areas where there's chunks of keratinocytes. You want to see if there's yeast organisms. Also, if there are bacterial organisms, that will be really important. I know that everyone always wants to know, well, how do you treat what, when? So if there's X amount of yeast under the microscope, when do you treat topically versus when do you treat systemically? And just like anything else in dermatology, it depends. And there's really not a standardization because we all collect cytologies differently and different fields can have different levels of organisms. To me, it really depends on, yeah, how many organisms we see to some degree, but how bad are the lesions on the pet? How paritic is that pet? What other medications are we utilizing in that pet? Are there other comorbidities we have to think about? Those are all the things that really I consider. Is it very localized disease versus generalized disease? How healthy is that patient? And I think they'll be able to fight it off or they really need some help. What's the reason the yeast is there? What is the owner able to do? You know, I would love to treat all of them topically, but sometimes the pet won't allow it. You know, they're just not going to tolerate extensive topical therapy or the owner is unable to. Maybe they're traveling a lot or they have health issues themselves that really prevent them from treating this dog topically. So we have to think about all of that when we decide if we're going to treat them or not. If I am able to treat them topically, we know there's lots of options that can be successful. So there's topical products that have, you know, one or 2% ketoconazole. Um, certainly there's lots of products that have things like myconazole in them. There's some older products that have climbazole in them, and you can still find some products with climbazole, even though the Duxo line um, has moved away from having climbazole. On that note, we do know glorhexidine, though we think about it just being used for pyoderma. It can be utilized as well. Um, to help with yeast organisms. And then we know even some older products like lime sulfur can be really helpful too. Um, in some of these cases, so very stinky and hard to get nowadays. And then there are the cases where you have to treat them systemically. And a lot of us are going to use azoles in those situations. Um, I would say probably ketoconazole and fluconazole are the ones that I use the most. If I'm going to use an azole, you know, you potentially could use something like itraconazole. We do need to be cautious about things like other medications are on based on how those um, antifungals work and that we want to also watch for things like liver issues in some of those cases, especially if we have to use them more long term. Um, and most of them are going to be dosed at five to 10 mg per kg once a day. Now there also is terbinafine, which is not an azole and is an alternative that can be used. It's a squalene epo epoxidase inhibitor, um, and that is different 
than the azoles. And so it doesn't tend to have a lot of issues with the liver. I have had some cases that don't respond to azoles that will respond to terbinafine. I've also had the flip where terbinafine was not as effective and we've had to use azole. Um, and the dosing of terbinafine is 20 to 30 mg per kg once a day. So one of the downfalls of terbinafine is if you have a bigger dog, they come in 250 milligram tablets. You may have to give quite a few tablets to get their appropriate dosing. And for some dogs, that's not a big deal, but for some, it, it can be something that we really have to think about. And then I always recheck these patients, depending on the severity of the infection, I'll recheck them, you know, two, three, four weeks, really kind of depending what else we're managing with them. And the kind of last thing I want to make sure we talk about um, is malassezia hypersensitivity. Now, this can be very, very tricky because we don't necessarily love to jump on considering a pet having to stay on long-term antifungals. However, especially as a dermatologist where we see some of the worst of the worst cases, we there are certainly malassezia hypersensitive dogs out there for sure. I've had plenty where we do everything we feel like we should be doing. We do it appropriately. And no matter what I do, if I take away their antifungals systemically, even if we're trying to do things topically, they are pruritic, they're uncomfortable, their quality of life is, is not as controlled because they're just so sensitive to the yeast. Now we do test for things like malassezia and we'll add things like malassezia into immunotherapy, which if a patient's going to do immunotherapy, I actually find extremely helpful in a lot of these cases long-term, but there are certain cases where we do have to utilize the use of long-term antifungals. So, you know, if they have to stay on something like ketoconazole or we're utilizing something like ketoconazole and cyclosporin together, um, so what I'll often do is I don't just assume a pet's malassezia hypersensitive. I treat them, we get things under control, we try to take it away. And if it just gets to the point where every time I take it away, the pet, you know, within a couple weeks breaks out or flares, or when I recheck them, they just break out with yeast right away again, despite controlling the primary allergy and doing the appropriate workup, then sometimes we will have to leave them on. So if I'm going to leave them on something like ketoconazole, you know, some we have to leave on daily. Um, some I'll reduce the dose to something like every other day. And there is also the option to do something called pulse antifungal treatment. So for example, can you give the dog antifungal like ketoconazole on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but then they skip the rest of the week? Um, and I've had all of these be successful or not successful. So I'll you kind, of, kind of depending on what the owner feels like they can put into their lifestyle that they'll remember to do. I think any of those are potentials that can be utilized. But I do try to see, can we use immunotherapy? Can we eventually get them away from having to be on long-term antifungals? You do need to monitor lab work, especially with azoles. But I, you know, you do lab work once or twice a year on any chronic medication. But if I am starting a pet on an azole, I will usually check, you know, within a couple of months of them being on that their liver is tolerating it well. And then if they are on it long-term, I at a minimum do lab work every six months, maybe even every, you know, three months, depending on if there's other medications or other comorbidities that we have to be thoughtful of. The very last thing I want to kind of throw out there is yeast in cats. Now, cats certainly break out with malassezia associated with their allergies. Definitely can happen. We do not see them break out as readily as dogs do with malassezia with their allergies. But one thing I want to note, if you have a cat, especially if they are older cat or if they're not feeling good, ADR, lethargic, and they are just not just like, oh, you find some yeast or you find a little bit of yeast otitis. If you go to sample on a cat and there's rip roaring tons of malassezia there, 
Um, I would be very, very concerned personally about immunosuppression. Cats just don't tend to widespread breakout with malassezia associated with their allergies compared to dogs. I'm not saying it's absolutely impossible, but it's just not as common. So it is important. I've had uh, cats who've had, you know, um, diseases. I've had to refer them to internal medicine before when we found lots of malassezia on them. I've certainly had ones where we end up finding, you know, neoplasia. So if you have a cat, just really look at the rest of the cat. Like, are they losing weight? Are they not feeling good? What has recent lab work looked like? And just kind of have that on your radar that if you're just finding tons and tons and tons of malassezia on a skin cytology of a cat, I would just start thinking like reevaluating and not assuming it's allergic. Like, oh, is there something else going on here? Do we need to do more of a systemic workup? You know, are they really skinny and losing weight, not feeling good? Do we need to refer them for imaging, more extensive lab work to assure we're not missing something? So yeasty beasties, I hope that's helpful. I do love finding yeasty beasties under the microscope. I mean, they're cute, first of all, and they're pretty easy to identify, but it's just also amazing to see how much better you can make these pets feel. If you find the yeast, you address the yeast, it can really dramatically improve their paritis, improve their quality of life, and just really make things better. So I hope you guys find that helpful. These are the type of topics that we do cover in the Derb Nerds, kind of going more in depth about things like yeast, pyoderma, allergy management. If you're ever interested in the online community, then certainly encourage you to check it out. You can go to thedermvet.com and there'll be a, the Derm Nerds tab. Um, there's a cytology lecture in there. We do topics of the month. We just have a really good time. And you can also put up cases if you're interested in getting lots of different eyes on it and different opinions on what to do. 